there's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Spring is here, and you can now get almost anything you need for your sunny days delivered with Uber Eats. What do we mean by almost? Well, you can't get a well-groomed lawn delivered, but you can get a chicken parmesan delivered. A cabana? That's a no. But a banana? That's a yes. A nice tan? Sorry. Nope. But a box fan? Happily, yes. A day of sunshine? No. A box of fine wines? Yes. Uber Eats can definitely get you that. Get almost, almost anything delivered with Uber Eats. Order now. Alcohol in select markets. Product availability may vary by region. See app for details. Shouldn't you be at work? And love. Oh, and love, he's got a real chance now. Peter and love. John Walk will take the penalty. Up goes Dion Dublin. Unknown goal from Ruddock. Ball by break here for Kiwabia. Panister and Bruce in the queue again. Bruce scores. Goal leg. Hit leg. Hit leg over the top. Now, you know him better than anybody, probably. Do you back him to score quickly, yes or no? Yes. Oh, oh and No! Hello and welcome to Quickly Kevin, Will He Score? It's Series 12, and we've got Jonathan Pierce for you today. I'm Chris Gold. Joining me, as always, Josh Whittacombe. Hello. And this week's intro comes courtesy of Mike Jarman, who says, Say hello to the ones that matter, Set Blatter. It's Michael Marden. Oh, God, I don't want to be associated, but yes, hello. <laughs> would you would you consider him a 90s figure? Do you think that's his peak? I suppose he destroyed so many decades, didn't he? He was more yeah. famous later on once he became notorious, I suppose. Yeah, when I think of 90s, Sepp Blatter, I think good guy. Do you know what I mean? Do you? I feel like... I don't know, it wasn't so toxic back then, was he? I remember Hal Havelange. I vividly remember him at USA 94 because he's so striking looking. Uh, Seth Blatter t- only took over in 1998. But Hal Havelange, when you see him, he's like, he's piercing cold eyes. You know, he's quite a striking looking, he's got a face that you yeah, don't forget. He's got, he's got a big, rugged face, hasn't he? Was, yeah. he? was he involved in any, no? Oh yeah, yeah. He- of course, yeah, yeah. there's a section called corruption on his Wikipedia page. <laughs> there's a clue. It is mad, isn't it? Sporting, like high up sporting politics is is just so predictable, isn't it? This isn't our normal fair. This, this, isn't, <laughs> this isn't our normal fair, is it? But um, so let's, yeah, let's let's do some correspondence then. Yeah, here we go. I'm Jim Rosenthal, and this is the Electronic Post Bag. You've got mail. All right. So you might remember uh, some episodes ago, we discussed, we had an email in a Do I Remember This Right? Someone suggesting that Keegan did the half-time draw during a Manchester United-Arsenal game at the height of Newcastle's title race yes, with I Manchester United. That, yeah. And we said, this sounds incredible. Guess what? Yeah. The footage has emerged. Oh, wow. Joshua Jones sent it in, who found it on the Fantastic Stews Football Flashbacks Twitter feed. Here it is, Kevin Keegan. And how about this for Joe Cool at halftime? Kevin Keegan making the draw. Wow. There it is. There's Kevin Keegan striding the Old Trafford pitch with a 
long overcoat on. Yeah. What, what an insane decision. <laughs> if you're Kevin Keegan, why, why are you doing that? These are your title <laughs> rivals. I think it's just polite, right? He's just overly polite and loves the limelight, maybe. Or have they offered him a fee? Even if they've offered him a fee, he's in a title race. He's got on the pitch at Old Trafford at half time. He was there. He was there on other reasons. Surely that's what we presume. Yeah. I mean, Chris, you, you're involved in this world. Would would that happen? Someone go, oh, Kev, lovely to see you. We need someone to do the the half time. I just don't even believe someone would even ask him. I can't believe someone would th- even be able to, you know, ask him that question. Because well, if it's you don't so ask, unlikely. you don't get, do you? Yeah, because who's going to... It must be someone he knows who's asked him. It's not just some bloke from Man United. It must be someone he's worked with previously or something who's... Do you think it was Fergie himself? And do you think after the kind of... No, I don't think so. (laughs) He he was such a megalomaniac at Old Trafford that he would go right down to organising who was doing the half-time draw. Well, Fergie probably still doesn't know this happened to this day. He was one of the few people in Old Trafford that didn't see it happen. Yeah, I guess he would have been in the dressing room. That is mad, isn't it? Yeah, well, there you go. Um, I'm glad to have that proven. Yeah. Do you you think this is in favour of Kevin Keegan or against him? Imagine any elite manager being asked that and in the time and place that it's asked imagine asking Fergie at St James's Park do you yeah. want to come out and just run and beat the Batak it's like he would be <laughs> he'd just give you a stare that you'd never forget <laughs> yeah you're right Fergie is never doing the half time draw at St James's Park in a million years in, in, a, in a way is this kind of more of a failing of Keegan than say the full time outburst you know the I tell you. Is this more embarrassing in a way? No, I think this is... He's got no pride. He's got no pride. (laughs) (laughs) Or he has got pride. He's absolutely like, well, fuck them. I'm going to go and do this. I don't care how they react. I'm Kevin Keegan. I've won won European Football of the Year twice or whatever. Was that right? Once, twice. This is one of those things you can... It's like Schrodinger's cat. You can view this one instant in two ways. There's no right right answer. Uh, He won the Ballon d'Or... Ballon d'Or twice. He retained it. Wow. Wow. That is, that is good, isn't it? Don't think I knew that. 78 and 79. Wow. That's amazing. Was that, was that in Germany? Uh, the second one was. Oh, he won the European Cup in 1977. So maybe that 78 Ballon d'Or kind of covers that a bit, if that uh, makes sense. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The so that's over. But then he must have had a great season at Hamburg to retain it. Yeah, he must have. It shows we don't really know what we're talking about. He <laughs> was also second in '77, so he's had a he's had a three year run there where he was Has he? comfortably the best player in the world. Best player in the world. Well, there you go. There you go. Right, I'm going to let you choose your adventure. You can have Peter yeah. Shilton and shit at kickups, or more evidence that Andy Gray has no idea of the passing of time. Uh, let's do Peter Shilton because I've okay. got an anecdote about Peter Shilton. I got told. Oh, great. Okay, right. Um, I'll quickly tell you. I was talking to someone who played under him at Plymouth. And I said, what was it like? And they said their abiding memory of him was um, the day he got sacked. <laughs> and they saw him, they were in the dressing room, they saw him walk past and walk out of the main kind of iron gates of Home Park. And under his arm, he had his personalised number plate, PS1. <laughs> what? <laughs> Why are you carrying that? Because it's obviously he's had to take it off the club car, hasn't he? Oh, God. Do you think he's physically himself been sacked and said, could I borrow a screwdriver? Also, that that kind of implies that part of the sacking process is, well, obviously we're going to need your car right now. You'd think you'd give him a week's grace to sort it, you know, make arrangements. You can't just move the, the thingy across. 
That car is stuck now. That car until is still at outside home park. Because that car's stuck with no number plates. And they, until they deal with that paperwork, which presumably Schiltz is going to have to be involved in, because he's transferring a number plate from one car to another. That can't have been easy in the days before the internet. I mean, you, you go to home park now and again, Josh. Is there a rusty old Mercedes sat in the car park that no one's ever no, been no, able no to number explain? Plates on. <laughs> with no number plates on. No, I don't think there is. Well, no, just the vision of Peter Shilton freshly sacked on his knees with a screwdriver taking the... Or do you think... <laughs> Do you think the kind of handyman, like the groundsman, was dispatched to do it? You know how um, in America you sort of see hitchhikers with a thumb and they've got a sign for where they're going? It's like yeah. Colorado with their thumb out. It's just thousands of Plymouthans driving down the motorway. Peter Shilton with a thumb out with a sign that just says PS1. They're like, where, where the fuck is that? I'm not driving there. Um, we should talk briefly about the circumstances around why you were able to hear that anecdote. Josh, because it yeah, has a, a 90s, lovely yeah. 90s ring to it. I went to the Papa John's final and wore a, a commissioned, because I was bringing the ball out with Vernon Kay bringing out the trophy, got commissioned a, a Spice Boys cream suit to wear. Is it custom made? No, it wasn't custom made, but it was sourced. I didn't, <laughs> what I mean, like all the bits were separately sourced. And so, uh, yeah, I was very, ex- very exciting, really. And the main thing is Jamie Redknapp liked the Instagram. That's got to complete the circle. Not only did he liked it, he threw in a few laughing face emojis, crying laughing exactly, face emojis. Exactly, yeah. Which is good that he's got over it, isn't it? Oh, amazing. Um, um, but... Yeah, give us the Peter Shilton anecdote then, Skull. Okay, so I want you to go... Thank you to Glenn Furman for pointing this out. I want you to go on this video to the last kind of 10 seconds or so. I want you to watch Peter Shilton's attempts at keepy-uppies. As Glenn Furman points out, absolutely shocking. Peter Shilton cannot string together more than a couple of keepy-uppies. That's mad, isn't it? He can barely even flick the ball up from, from the ground. I'm not a good footballer, but I genuinely think I could do better than that. <laughs> I mean, but is there? A, would you expect a goalkeeper, especially in that yes, era? Yes, because he's 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 a sports person. Not 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 to go back to um, league of their own, but when you do something like that, you suddenly realise that sports people are brilliant at sport. So Jamie Redknapp or Freddie Flintoff are so sporty that they can do anything to an extent. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's not like I have the skills for football, but I don't have the skills for tennis. Do you know what I mean? All of that area. You know, the best people at sport at your school, best people at football were best at all the sports, weren't they? More yes. or less. Yeah. That's a great pretty, insight. Because yeah. the other thing about Peter Shilton is he was sporty. He played until his 40s. He, do you know what I mean? He, he wasn't like some kind of chancer. So it's weird that there's that problem he was very bad at kicking at Plymouth though then when the back pass all came in as I've said before so that now explains that you just think he'd be good at hand-eye coordination and also like you, I think I've said this before but you're going in training every day there's foot you're around footballs constantly you must be trying to do a keeper is he not trying to kick the ball up in the air at all all those days is very it's like if I was in a in a room with a dartboard every day I'd probably chuck yeah. a few darts and by the end of it after after 10 years or so I'd probably be yeah. all right he's not he can't even do two kick-ups it's so weird, isn't it? I know. Do let us know. Hello at quicklykevin.com. Give us your theories. Is that just a bad clip? No, I mean, I he, he, the thing is about that clip, he has two attempts at doing keepy-uppies and fails both times. The first time yeah. he tries to do keepy-uppies, he's throwing the ball up in the air and starting trying to do keepy-uppies, and the first touch just takes it 
well away from him. <laughs> and then he goes again. Do you think there's footage from the, the warm-up where he's like that Maradona? He's just booing it up in the air. <laughs> just like you control it. <laughs> he's the opposite of Maradona, isn't he? They really are chalk and cheese. Are we sure he was a good goalie? Because we, we have no <laughs> evidence to this from everything. <laughs> now, a legend. Genuinely, particularly for you, Chris... As a man from London, I only became first exposed to Jonathan Pierce via Sensible Soccer and Robot Wars. That was my first exposure to him. But you knew him as already a commentary legend. Yeah. In, it, in the way that people from Manchester remember Tony Wilson presenting the regional news, you remember Jonathan Pierce as the commentator on Capital Gold. You honestly can't overstate how massive Jonathan Pierce was in London from like 87, like throughout the 90s. He was the voice of sport in London, in football specifically, in those London clubs. He was everywhere. Capital Gold, there was nothing like it. It was the only way to follow your a London team. Jonathan Pierce was simply Mr. London football on the airwaves. He's massive. I'm so excited about this. Here he is, Jonathan Pierce. Our guest this week ruled the radio waves as the voice of football in London throughout the 90s, starring as he did on Capital Gold Sports Time with his own unique, articulate and enthusiastic style. Starting out in the 80s, he's now in the fifth decade as commentator with a stellar CV, which includes Sky Sports, Channel 5, 5 Live, Match of the Day and, of course, Robot Wars. What an honour to welcome to Quickly Kevin, Jonathan Pearce. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. It's a pleasure. I didn't live in London in the 90s, but Chris, who grew up in London in the 90s, talks of it as a golden era for football commentary when you were the voice of London football. Is that how you remember that period? I'll tell you what, Josh, I remember it as being great fun. Yeah. 15 years I was at Capital and we had 15 years of laughter. We worked incredibly hard. It was quite a brave concept, you know. I'd already been commentating like that uh, BBC Radio Bristol and then Radio West beforehand. And before then, up in the attic, playing Sabutio and commentating on it. Always used to get very excited because I used to play against myself. So I was always guaranteed to win at Sabutio. <laughs> Therefore, I was very excited. So I had that style anyway. But we had a very innovative and demanding programme director at Capital Gold called Richard Park, who came from Scotland and done sports up there. Oh, wow. Richard Park? Yeah, Richard Park, yeah. Wow. So he was incredibly demanding, but he was brilliant for me, really created my career in so many ways, greatly supportive of football, gave us some money to do what we wanted to do. And he wanted to create an atmosphere where we took the supporters into the grounds through their radio set, through the car transistor, you know, and sort of transport them there and give them a voice. And that's what it was all geared around, really, making, because they're brilliant commentators before, huge influences on my life, Ed Stern and Peter Jones and people like this and Brian Butler. But they had their own BBC sort of style and we wanted to create something different. And, and that's what happened, really. And you just went there and got caught up in the whole picture of it and tried to paint that picture for people and take them into the ground. And we worked really, really hard, Josh. We worked really hard. There were long, long hours and we played hard yeah. as well. It was like the Wild West, you know. I think at one stage we were banned from every pub down Tottenham Road. <laughs> It was such fun. And the clubs paid their part. The clubs bought into it. That's the important thing, boys. The clubs bought into yeah. it. They accepted what we wanted to do and went along with it. And I got great help from people like George Graham at Arsenal and Johnny Lyle at West Ham United. They were great supporters and it was brilliant for me, really. And uh, lovely times. Loved it. Did Richard Park kind of 
find you at BBC West or BBC Bristol or whatever? No, I'd gone to London. I'd left Radio West, the independent one down there, and then I'd come to London and worked for a thing called Club Call. I don't know if you remember oh, that. yeah, but, uh, from Teletext, and you'd find yeah, up. That's it, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And therefore got close to three of the London clubs, Arsenal, West Ham and Chelsea through that. And then um, they wanted someone to come in and set the sport up. And I had done that in a brief spell down in Brighton with Southern Sound down there and at Radio West I had done. So they wanted someone with the experience of setting it all up. Someone who had contacts with the clubs, which I did because I sort of come from football originally. So I guess in a way, while Richard came for me, Matthew Bannister was the man who actually approached me. Oh, he was out of news at the wow. time. Went to Radio 1. We had a lunch in uh, Italian on Tottenham Road. And he said, do you want to come and do this? And I went, I jumped at it. At that stage, I was working at the BBC for a thing called the Local Radio Network Desk. So if there was a big national sports story, we used to sort of turn it around and give it a local angle. And then it went out to the BBC, say, BBC Devon. Manchester United had beaten Arsenal 4-2 to win the title. And Frank Stapleton, who once visited Newton Abbott, scored <laughs> yeah. the goal. And that's what we used to do, you know. So I was working there. And when the chance came to come to Capital, I just leapt at it, to be honest. That's amazing that, like, two legends of radio were kind of... Because Matthew Bannister... Went and basically rebuilt Radio 1, didn't he, he in his did, image? He did, yeah. He did, yeah. And then Richard Park was such a big deal at Global and then on Fame Academy and stuff. So it was a great time to be at Capital Gold. Kenny Everett was there, wasn't he? And, like, Tony Blackburn, this is just wall-to-wall legends. How fortunate and I. I mean, when I was at Radio West, I worked with Whispering Bob Harris was down there, Johnny Walker was down there. And then I'd come to London, there's Chris Tarrant, who was a close friend and did a lot for my career in the... Again, this was innovative. On the FM programme, the huge breakfast programme was Terence Breakfast Programme, they used to play the commentary in from, say, World Cup 1990, which is when the Capital Gold Sport really sort of exploded. And that hadn't been done before, you know. So they got people involved, music listeners, across to sports. So then when Capital Gold itself started up, Tony Blackburn was there, Kenny Everett was there, all these great broadcasters from my sort of childhood and... Kenny was wonderful, you know. He had no idea about football. He really, <laughs> he had no idea. But he, he understood what we were trying to do and he got caught up in it in a little bit as well. I'll tell you a story about Kenny boys. We were up for an award and it was up in Suffolk. It was in the little village where, um, it was a Tory MP who wrote books and got disgraced, went to Jeffrey prison. Archer. Him, yeah. He lived in this village anyway, so it was in a little pub. And we went up and Kenny went up. He was up for presenter of the year or whatever. And we were up for sports programme of the year. And we sat at this horseshoe table and the adjudicating panel were at the top and all the contestants were down the sides. Anyway, it comes to, we'd had a drink on the way up, by the way. Anyway, we get there and it comes to our programme and it was the candidates are uh, Capital Gold Sport London and so and so and so and so, BBC Radio Norfolk for the deaf. And Kenny's gone, what? They said BBC Radio Norfolk for the deaf. Well, Kenny Avery exploded into laughter, right? This was really inappropriate. And the winner is BBC Radio for the deaf. He's gone into that character that used to cross the legs and do all the, all the best possible taste. He's there in this award ceremony doing this. And he was so pissed and so happy. He thought this was so funny. He fell off his chair and went underneath the table. They're looking at me daggers, right? All these people, sober, sombre people are looking at us daggers. Well done to the winners. They won it. And then Kenny wins his award. He had to go up and do a little speech right, in the state he was in. And then we came back and we got to this little Rattler train station and we had about 55 stops before we got back to London. And the bloke I was in said, who was there, who then went on to be big in Celador and millionaire, this fellow who's an executive. And he said, go and get some drink for us on the way back. So I've toddled into the little buffet bar there and they had miniatures. 
Yeah. And he said, what do you want? And I said, oh, well, I'll take the fridge load. Just chuck it into some bags. Right? <laughs> so I've come back with these two shopping bags full of miniatures, everything you could think of. And between this, this little backwater station, we got so pleasantly drunk on the way back, sitting with Kenny Everett, telling Kenny Everett stories. Amazing. How about that? What oh. a privilege, eh? To sit with Kenny yeah. in his pomp, doing all his characters live in front of you. It was just oh, the most wow. amazing, amazing experience. I was so lucky. So yeah. lucky. Oh, man. What a place. And it was just an amazing time for him. You said it was like the Wild West. Like, how did it work? Because now there's presumably rules on which radio stations, sometimes Five Live's got the football, sometimes Talk Sports got it. Was there any rules on what you could and couldn't broadcast? Yeah, you have to have the rights. We got the rights when we first went on. We did a rights with the cartel of London top flight teams and we paid a grand total of £30,000 a year (laughs) that's mad and that was for at that stage there were six now there could have been 12 from London the fee would have still been £30,000 a year that's what we agreed and we could do London matches home and away there's still radio was it two then or had it gone to Radio 5 Live I can't remember Talk Sport didn't exist Radio London was still out there doing a couple of commentaries but not much so we sort of took over the airwaves in London and by Euro 1996, we were getting far more listeners in London than BBC Radio 2 Stroke Radio 5 Live yeah. were wow. at that stage. There were ridiculous rules for the games you weren't commentating on. You had to announce what game you were commentating on, right? So say we were doing Arsenal-Chelsea on the Saturday and the other games you would have reporters at, Tottenham against Ipswich, whatever, you could only have three reports per half and those reports couldn't last for more than 30 seconds. Oh, wow. And then the other rule was, if a cup tie went to extra time, that was a freebie. You could commentate on that if it went to extra time. So what we used to do again, which had never been done before, on cup tie nights, say League Cup nights, if a game kicked off at 7.30, that would be our first commentary. Then at 7.45, we'd switch to the next game. And then if there was an eight o'clock, we'd switch to that game. So we would have three commentaries that night. We'd announce them all and that would all be done. And then, of course, we'd hope that one went to extra time. So we'd have snatches of commentary from four games in a night. And it had never been done before. So it was all glorious. It must have been so exciting. Oh, Josh, it was hilarious, you know. I mean, the stories, you could go on forever. We we were under a bit of pressure to win awards, to be fair. Richard used to say, and Sony or nothing, boys. So, And I was lucky enough to win a few of those. But if you didn't, it was deemed a very bad year. It'd be like Manchester City not winning a trophy in a year, you know. <laughs> and we went to one, and we'd been told we hadn't won. Right? He'd told us in the morning, oh, boys, I know Bad luck, you've not won the trophy, lads. So anyway, so we get there and I sat next to, I think it was Tarrant, right? And we got gloriously drunk beforehand. But we're not going to win the award, so that's it. Doesn't matter. We're out of there in an hour and a half going to a nearby pub. And then, of course, it was Michael Aspel on stage and Michael Aspel says, and the winner of the sports award is best sports programme of the year. And the only syllable he got out was ka. And then you just heard this sort of, Echoes roar. So we realise it's us, right? And Park's going, get up there and make a speech. The four of us rambled on stage. Room 2000, the glitterati of the radio industry there. And I've gone, oh, my God, I can't believe it. I've never been so shocked. So I told my mother-in-law I was getting married to a daughter and she screamed. <laughs> 2,000 people just looking at us. He stumbled off the stage, and Michael Aspel just turned around, very deadpan, and went, goodness me, ladies and gentlemen, I thought the days of the football hooligan were over. (laughs) Wow, Aspel, (laughs) two-footed. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. You mentioned working hard. I was saying to Josh, like, Capital Radio, you were on all the time throughout the 90s. I read that you once did 150 games in a single season. The amount of hard work is astonishing. If you've done the teams on a regular basis, it's still about 10 hours prep per game because you have to update the stats and go over and try and watch their games beforehand. If you've not done the teams beforehand, it's an enormous amount of time. And this year, again, I'll probably be up around about 120, 125 with the World Cup and the women's Euros before that. So it is a a lot of work. That season you're talking about, I think, was 1998 and the French World Cup year when we went abroad and did the World Cup. And Tony Gale and I travelled the length and breadth of the country doing a game virtually every day and... We travelled in a minibus some of the time in a camper van and it was outrageous, right? It's like some sort of rock and roll tour. The behaviour was poor, but it was it was it was great fun. And the other thing is we did this game, right? It was the third, fourth playoff match. Croatia against someone I can't remember. Anyway, part to France and Tony got ill. We were staying down in Annecy, a fantastic place. Anyway, Tony got ill and he couldn't travel. So I went and did the game. We had a ISDN point, a broadcasting point in our hotel room. So I went up to Parc de France and I'm commentating on the game and Tony's my co-com. He's 800 miles away. He's watching on a telly and I'm doing the commentary and no one noticed, but it set a trend. And all of a sudden the broadcasters realised, oh, hang on a minute, we can do this. And now a lot of stuff is done off tube from the studio. We did another one a few years later. When things turned at Capital, it turned a bit pear-shaped. Richard was forced out. Anyway, they had someone else in charge of programming. And she said, you can't go abroad and do the Champions League games. Well, we already had the deal in place. We'd already paid. It's not costing us any money. And she said, well, you can send one reporter. So what we did is we sent one reporter, whose name was Phil Parry, who's now a sports editor at BBC Radio London. And he'd go over with a mic and mic the ground up so we'd get in the effects. And then we'd do the commentary from my back bedroom in Brighton, Tony and I. But, of course... The sound is ahead of the pictures because the pictures are coming in via satellite. So they have to go from the ground to the satellite and down. There's a little delay. So we were in the crowd noise and I think it was Arsenal playing at Barcelona. Barcelona get a corner on the telly. But on the radio, through you are from the ground, the new camp goes ballistic. So Tony Gale goes, do you know, I think they're going to score from this corner. (laughs) (laughs) All the way through the game, he was doing it. Arsenal player goes in. Is it a yellow? Is it a red? (laughs) No, he's going to go. He's definitely going to go in. (laughs) He's going to get set up. 
One of the things that sounds amazing is that you went to Italia 90 for Capital Gold with Bobby Moore. Mm. We've already had Kenny Everett, Chris <laughs> Tarrant. I know. These are big people that you're hanging out with. Bobby Moore, though, that must have been mind-blowing. Yeah, well, he was working at the time, if you remember the Sunday Sport newspaper, a bit of a scurrilous yeah, yeah, yeah. thingy. Lots of pictures of naked women in there and everything. And he was sort of sports editor for there. And the first thing that struck you, Josh, about Bobby Moore was how ordinary he was, how humble yeah. he was. And he'd be sitting here now, he'd be on a Zoom link with us and he'd be chuckling away. If Josh, you said to Bob, what made you special as a player? And he went, I wasn't special. Because I was at Bristol City when I was a kid, it didn't work out for me. I was never good enough. And we were having this conversation one day, travelling to a game. Bob always used to drive, wouldn't let me drive. And he'd say, because you're doing all the work at a game, so I'll do the work beforehand. It's oh, funny. Oh, yeah. man. We were driving up to Sunderland and back in a day and we were having this conversation and he went, why didn't you make it? And I went, well, Bob, Basically, I couldn't get up and down the pitch in the same week, let alone the same game. I never scored a senior goal. I couldn't really pass the ball very well, and I was useless <laughs> in the air. And he went, oh, yeah, well, PSO, you see, the thing is, I was the same as that in every respect. The only difference between you and me is I won the World Cup in 1966. <laughs> <laughs> he was so funny. He had this dry sense of humour, and he was so generous. We had a lad who worked with us called Julian Walters, who went on to work for Sky Sports News. And we went to Euro 92 in Sweden. England went out, didn't they? So Capital yeah. recalled Julian. They said, we only need one of you over there now. And Julian was heartbroken because all he wanted to do was see a tournament through. Yeah. So Bobby calls me up and went, I'll pay for him. I'll pay all of Julian's expenses and his wages while he's here, as long as no one knows. So I got hold of Capital and that's what we did. And oh, Julian didn't man. know that until Bobby had died. Oh my God. I know, he was incredibly kind and generous and understated like that. We did the World Cup semi-final in 1990 in Turin. I was doing the commentary. Bobby was in my co-com. Mick Lowe's, who wasn't working on that game, but came anyway. And the commentary boxes were very, very small. Really, there were three seats in there, but it was only ideal for two people. I'm not a ballet dancer in size, and neither <laughs> is Lowe's. So anyway, we sit there, and there's a fella next to us. He's only one of them, and he's got two empty seats. So I've said, excuse me, mate. Can you spare a seat for our 1966 World Cup winning captain Bobby Moore to sit in your box? Give us a little bit more space. Nine. <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> Pick the wrong country. Anyways, <laughs> at the end of the game, fantastic game. Go back yeah, and watch it. It's an unbelievable game. I'm crying. I've looked around. Bobby's in floods of tears. It meant so much to him all those years later. Yeah. We've walked out of the ground. And we're coming out of the ground. Funny enough, we were sponsored by Fiat. And we all have Fiat cars. We've written four of them off, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so as we're coming out, there's massive queues. We're thinking we're going to have to walk all the way back into Turin. Richard Park pulls in next to us in this massive flash car with plenty of space in the back. Hey, great game, boys. Great game, great drama. And sped off. Just disappeared into the night. So when I'm walking down, all these fans, we get to this big square in Turin, which was made famous by the Italian job. They were in the square. There's all hell breaking loose. There's German fans and English fans. There we are battering each other to hell. Italian fans joining in. A massive swamp of a fight. Initially, we were going to protect Bob, and then we thought, better of it. Mick and I took the cowardly route, stood behind him. As he just walked, Moses through the Red Sea light, through this square. 
And everyone's going, you know, English, German, Italian, right, Bobby Moore, it's Bobby Moore, you know. They sort of deferentially moved apart. And we walked <laughs> through the square to our hotel. And as you look behind, it was like the waves coming down, you know, beyond the Egyptian <laughs> army again. And they just joined in and had a good old rumble and we walked, we walked through and we, he chuckled about it. Again, we had so many stories with him. Um, Didn't you bump into Jack Charlton in uh, Italian? What happened was England stayed at a place called... Santa Maria de Pula, I think it was called. And then the Irish stayed down the road in another place called Pula. For some reason, Bobby Robson didn't want Bobby Moore in the team hotel. Mick Lowe's and I were incredibly fortunate. I think there were seven or eight people who were allowed to stay with England throughout the tournament, only seven or eight. And we were two of those people. So mm. imagine the experience oh I had with God. England all the way through to a third, fourth player. So close to the players. Now, down the road with the Irish in their hotel, and that's where Bobby stayed. He stayed with the Irish, the England captain. And Bobby Robson put a tank across the gate of our hotel so no one could get in. But we burrowed a hole in the hedge so we could get out. What we didn't realise is when we were coming back from the night out, the England players were going out through our little hole for their night. <laughs> he still got the semi-final, by the way. And but we go out through that hole and go down the road, right, and sit with the Irish. So I'm sitting, the first time I did it, Big Jack was so welcoming, and he had a, an assistant called Morris Setters. And all the Irish players were at the bar, about 15, 20 feet away, all there. I think their wives were with them as well, their families. Anyway, it was a great crack in there. It was fantastic. Really good Irish evenings. And Jack said, come and sit here. So I'm sat between Jack Charlton and Bobby Moore. Oh, amazing. Drinking pints of Guinness. And every now and again, he'd go, Morris, go and get another round. So little Morris Setters would have to go and get another round for Bob, me and Big Jack. And we oh, just sat there and they talked to me about football. They sort of welcomed <sighs> my ideas and my thoughts on it. They weren't sneery and they weren't yeah. patronising and it was it was just unbelievable. You must have just gone, I can't believe this kind of yeah. thing's happening to I me. I was 30 years of age, you know, I was 30. Oh, it was my, my first World Cup. <laughs> oh, man. I still talk to the Irish boys about it nowadays, the ones I bump into and... 94, England weren't there, so I was with the Irish there again, and I was talking to on the podcast with Ray Houghton recently, and uh, the experiences, you know, the stories, being in New York when Ireland beat Italy 1-0 and Ray scored the goal, and that was a good night. We went, because my best mate was there, he's from Donegal, all his cousins mm. were over, and we went to a bar, right, up by the Central Park. And it was flooded out with Irish and the mounted police came up and they got off their horses and they're drinking with the Irish fans, everything. It was such a party. And I'm in this bar and I remember having this conversation with this fella. It's a massive, long bar, boys. It was really, really long. And I was having this conversation. I was getting angry because he wasn't answering back. He wasn't playing any part in the conversation. I'm weirding on. Anyway, my mate Manus, we're going somewhere else now, going clubbing in New York. What do I know? It's unbelievable. You know, I'm trying to find where Springsteen played when he was a youngster yeah. and all this sort of stuff. What an adventure for me. Anyway, memories of the bar lingered long. And I, the next year I went back with my wife and I said, you've got to come and see this bar. It's a fantastic Irish bar. So we go back to this bar and it wasn't long at all. It was a bit of a stunty bar, not long at all. But at the end was a full length plate glass mirror floor to ceiling mirror and I'd had an hour long conversation arguing with this fella for not talking back to me it was in fact my reflection in the mirror <laughs> <laughs> I want to ask you and I would like to know we've had this one emailed in from a lister and we hope it's true I don't know if you know England obviously didn't qualify for the 1994 World Cup that doomed qualification campaign and remember we played San Marino away and infamously went a goal down almost immediately and a listener says they recall your commentary that night which began Welcome to Bologna on Capital Gold for England versus San Marino with Tenants Pilsner brewed with the Czechoslovakian yeast for that extra Pilsner taste and England have won down. Do you remember that? 
This is the biggest myth of all oh, time. No. Oh, no. Oh, oh what, a what a shame. shame. <laughs> what a shame. England have won the game. Ian Wright's got a hat-trick. But they went 1-0 down to a man called Galtieri and David Galtieri. Anyway, and we got on the bus afterwards, the press box to go to the airport. And the press, rather than concentrating on the six and the Ian Wright hat-trick, were all doom and gloom about England because they conceded a goal in the first 10 seconds to San Marino. So I've said... This was a joke. Blimey, boys, yeah, you've got it bad. What about me? By the time I got the sponsors mentioned out, England are 1-0 down. It wasn't true. It was just a joke. Oh, no. And then they've added the sponsor's name into the quote, quoted me as if that was the commentary and made it one of the Times quotes of the year. It never (laughs) happened. It never happened. It never, ever happened. Oh, wow. At least we cleared that up. Yeah. One of the best bits of commentary I've ever heard is covering Cantona, Kung Fu Kick, mm-hmm. which is on YouTube. I don't know if you're aware that it's on YouTube as your coverage of that. It's so visceral and so... Yeah. It's also so articulate in such a unlikely and shocking situation. Do you vividly remember that or were you kind of on autopilot? And- no, I do. Um, there was a family connection in that my father-in-law and mother-in-law were still are big Crystal Palace fans. And there was a connection between Capital Gold and Crystal Palace in that we were rights holders and we were always welcome at the training ground and been through that whole right bright Steve Koppel journey and the Jeff Thomas thing. And I felt very close to Crystal Palace at the time. Manchester United weren't in our remit as a football club because we were a London radio station. So Got a lot of London fans. They've got a lot of London. Later, when we broadened Capital and it became a national network, tell you that still in a minute but Manchester United became in our sort of stable but at this time they weren't particularly and they come to London and I was a huge admirer of Cantona that played a part in it because I was such a fan of his what a genius footballer he was and he'd been man-marked by Richard Shaw through the game and Richard had done a good job on him and you could see Eric getting more and more wound up and then what I saw from a player I hugely admired so utterly shocked me the fact that he could go into the crowd and kick this fella in the way that he did. And I had never seen anything beforehand. And also, chaps, it was right in front of me. Right, yeah. The commentary box there is no more than 100 feet from where this happened. So I had this clear view of it right in front of me. And I was utterly aghast. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. And that all came out in that moment. And, you know, this is a very strange thing to say. But because I think of that Manchester United, in a way, once the executives had heard that back, when it came to discussing the deal for Manchester United when we were Capital Gold sort of Inc., they were really, really pleased to have us on board. And years later, the commercial manager, who'd been at Chelsea as well, name slips away from me, but uh, he came down for a meeting in London. They loved what we were doing so much for our Manchester team. They said, look, this is what we want you to have all our games in London as well. You will have a place on the team bus or the plane when it goes away. You will speak to Alex Ferguson five minutes before kickoff every game and a player. You will have him first afterwards, blah, 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 blah. It was the most unbelievable radio deal of all time. And the person in charge at that stage, Richard had gone, turned around and said to him, how much are Manchester United playing for this privilege? Oh, my God. At which point, he put his papers back in his bag, said to me, PSLC is soon, shook my hand, walked away. 
Oh my God. And I said, are you aware of what you've just done? And there was no awareness because by that stage, the people at Capital didn't really understand football or football politics. Oh my God. What a chance gone. Yeah. It's an interesting point, actually, because when I was at school, we would always argue about who you supported because you would be so passionate about each and every London team. My groups of West Ham fans would be like, Jonathan Pierce is a West Ham fan. He's clearly, he gets into more West Ham more than ever. And Spurs fans would say the same and Arsenal fans and Chelsea fans. I wondered, did you ever have a London team? Was there ever kind of one team in particular? Not really. I had the West Ham connection with Bobby and then latterly Tony Gale and Billy Bonds. Who's Tony's one of the funniest men you'll meet in football, from my oldest friend in football now. And Billy Bonds, one of the straightest human beings I've ever met in my life. Absolutely straight up and down, most honest man I think I've ever met. So I had the connection through them to West Ham United. I loved going to West Ham. John Lyle, the manager, was very good to me. I had connections with Arsenal. George Graham was very good to me. I knew the players coming through that George Graham side. Arson was an amazing man. So I had the connections there. Tottenham, Gary Mabbott was at school with me and I was a friend of Terry Venables, so I had connection there. Palace, through the family and friends. My oldest friend in London is a lifelong Palace fan. So there were connections to a lot of the clubs, you know. I could go on and every time I was at a London club, I think we had a connection. Charlton, Capital had a very good relationship with Charlton. We had a... Again, uh, this exclusive commentary deal, and we were at Charlton once, Tony Gale, this was the Tony Gale capital era, late on then, 98 through to 2002 when I left, and we were at Charlton very early on in the season, and we're commentating away, and referee loved himself, Graham Pohl. He was refereeing, right? He was awful in the first half. So we go to the advertising breaks at half time, and as the advertising breaks are going through, and then some other thing happened, so we were off air for at least four minutes. So we're sitting there going, oh God, Graham, oh, what an absolute tosser he's been in the first half. So, 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 so. Language was very, very fruity. And these people in the front of the stand are turning around, putting their thumbs up. Nice, yeah, yeah. Clearly agreeing with what we're saying. We're off air. We're off air. How, how, how do they know? And then the steward comes running up and goes, oh my God, my God, stop swearing. Stop swearing. Why? Well, your special feed to the Charlton blind supporters is still up. <laughs> We were very important to the blind supporters yeah. with sight problems to paint the pictures for them, but we didn't realise when we were at the advertising, they were still with us. So I just adore this capital stuff. And one last thing. Did you fall asleep during a Zenith Dayton Sisters Cup match? I hope that's not. No, that was, that was against Plymouth. Was it? That was Wimbledon against Plymouth, yeah. Although my biog says I'm Cornish, and I'm Cornish through and through. I'm a real Kerno man. But I was actually born in Freedom Fields in Plymouth. Oh, were you? So do you feel like you've got a connection to Argyle? No. Correct <laughs> <laughs> is the right answer. My dad never, ever forgave me for being born the wrong side of the Tamer. They're the Cornish team as well, in a way, Plymouth. No, I do feel it. That's, you know, that's a bit trite, that answer. I do feel a connection to them in that it's my birthplace. Anyway, they played at Wimbledon, Plough Lane, yeah. in a ZDS game. And I wasn't commentating, I was reporting. We were doing a game elsewhere. I was reporting. They were coming to me for commentary snatches. It was so dull. And it was like game 18 in 19 days for me. It was shocking. And I'm sitting at the back there at the stand with a little radio point and just fell asleep. And this woman said to, she was nudging me like this because she could hear them shouting in my earphones, Piercy, we're coming to you, we're coming to you. So she's prodded me in the chest. And just before they came to me, I had to say to her, took my head for what's the score? (laughs) <laughs> what's the score has anything happened no nil nil nothing's happened at all and they came to me what's happening at Plough Lane nil nil nothing's happened thank you <laughs> <laughs>
Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations at Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click gift mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. The most exciting part of a vacation stay at a home rental? Easy. It's being greeted upon arrival with a rusted lockbox affixed to the underside of a stranger's condo. Yeah, you simply twist knobs, click gears, jiggle it, and then rip it off its moorings. And voila! Your prize is a key to a questionable home rental and maybe tetanus. When you just want to get your vacation started by actually getting into your room, it matters where you stay. At Hilton, we deliver your key right to your phone on the Hilton Honors app. Hilton for the stay. I was telling a story, I don't know whether it was on JPNT, the podcast, are on air. I can't remember the last few days anyway. We were telling another story. I mean, loads of things happened. We were at Upton Park, Bobby Moore and myself. There's another name drop for Bobby with a big clang, but there's a purpose to this story. We're doing a game, and we used to rig the effects microphone and tape it mm. to the stanchions in front of us. Old wooden stand at West Ham, the original old main stand. So we're there, and we had a producer called Pete Simmons, and he's he comes through and he goes, there's someone swearing. There's someone swearing. We can hear it really clear. Every F, every Jeff is coming through very, very clearly. You've got to stop it. So I'm in full flow. I don't know what's going on. I carried on going. And Bobby's turning and twisting around. And he goes, now don't forget, you won't hear what Pete Simmons is saying. The audience wouldn't hear him saying, you have to stop the swearer. But you heard Bobby clearly saying on air, no, Pete, the six foot, six inch giant, 23 stone, shaven headed, much tattooed West Ham fan can say exactly what he wants, in my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> and all of a sudden, the audience would have heard that <laughs> one random sentence. <laughs> and another thing we wanted to talk to you about was sensible soccer. I was fascinated, obviously, by the time FIFA comes around, the recording process is a lot more mature. So, sensible soccer was, I think it might be the first game to have commentary on it. Well, if it is, then I'll tell you this story because I, I remember doing the record sessions and getting in there and the co-commentator was an actor. We get in there and we're booked for a couple of hours to do this and you think, wow, well, I'll do it in 20 minutes and I'll be gone. And we get in there and there's like 10 inches deep of script oh, there. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, we course. sit there and it's Adams right-footed, Adams left-footed, Adams heads it away, Adams scuffs it away, Adams boots it away. It's a throw-in on the right. It's a throw-in on the left. And all these just thousands and thousands and thousands because they couldn't sample your voice and computerise it and change it like I think they do now. 
So we had to do all these things. And then he'd come in, you know, as a co-commentator and co-commentator voice. Yeah, it's a good challenge or it's a bad challenge. Anyway, we get through to lunch. We go out for lunch. It was a pub around the corner, funny enough. We went back. Where's matey, the co-commentator? Oh, no, it's too much for him. The pressure of doing it is too much for him. I've got to do the commentary voice and the co-com voice. What? Yeah, so I'm trying to think, oh, great tackle. Got out for a corner kick. Hey, that's a great tackle. It's got out for a corner kick. So, they're varying the co-com voice from sort of pseudo McCoyce to whoever, Paul Merson, you know. There is another iconic thing, which I'm sure you do remember around that time, which was Robot Wars. Oh, Robot Wars. Oh, lovely. How did that come about? They just approached me to do it. Um, this fellow called Steve phoned me up and said, we're going to do this thing, we come meet you, and it will explain the concept of it. And I sat there and they explained it, and I said, well, I, I failed biology, chemistry, and physics if you add up the marks. And I still didn't pass. I was useless at all science. I had no idea, which was a shame of my dad because he was a trained electrical engineer, senior lecturer in there before he went into football. Anyway, so I had no idea technical about this. Oh, you don't need to. No, no, that's part of the glory of it. Jeremy Clarkson's going to present it, and we're going to be doing this, and they're just going to come in and smash, smash, smash each other up, and you can say what you want. So I didn't go. All of mine was post-production in the early years. My stuff was post-production. But I saw it like you saw it. I didn't have a run-through and then commentate. Yeah. Because I didn't want to do it like that. I said, let's just play it and I'll commentate as we played it. So the moments where you hear me laughing are absolutely genuine. When they do a little backstory, oh, this is little Johnny, he's seven, he's put all his pocket money into making squidgy do. And as they're showing the backstory, I'm thinking, oh, this robot's going to last a second. Anyway, <laughs> and, and anyway, oh, and little Johnny's crying, and he, I hope it goes through, it'll break my heart. Anyway, squidgy do comes into the arena there, and he gets pulped inside one second. And I think this is hilarious. So I just laugh my head off, right? And totally inappropriate these days, of course, you couldn't do it. I just think this is really funny, all the stories stories were hilarious and I so enjoyed it and then when Jeremy left Craig took over and then I'd go up and do a day's filming or two days yeah. filming and uh, I got on so well with Craig I love Craig to bits yeah. I think we used to have to do all our stuff in the morning because once we'd gone to lunch we weren't very good in the afternoon <laughs> but there was a fella right he comes across now the producer of it and he used to do the safety checks was a guy who used to produce Parkinson back in the day oh wow anyway so they used to do these safety checks, and they said, you've got to see this video. We filmed it, I believe it was on the Dam Busters base in Lincolnshire, where we filmed it, the big hangar there. He's gone, you've got to see this video of a test we did. And anyway, this fella comes in, he's going, hi, yeah, what's your name? Brad, or whatever it was. Where are you from? California. Um, what's your machine? Napalm, Nelly. Pardon? What's your weapon then? Napalm. No, 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 what's, what's your weapon? What's your weapon? Genuinely, napalm. No, 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 no. You'll have to show us. All this is on video. So they get him out on the runway there. I'm watching the video and you see this dummy robot that's put in front of Napalm Nelly, whatever it was called. Jeez, it's Napalm. So he goes back in and he goes, how did you get it into the country? It's illegal in the UK. Well, I have my means or whatever. I got it in. No, 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 no. This is essentially a children's entertainment programme. There are children in the audience. No, you'll have to go back. The guy's gone ballistic. He's gone all the way to compete in Robot Wars with Napalm. And there's another one. If you look later on in the series, they had these big plexiglass screens swung in and out, bulletproof that swung in and out on the edge of the arena. The robot's got bigger and bigger and bigger. And they introduced this sort of Goliath robot. I've forgotten what it's called. It's massive. It's the size of a door, right? It's huge. You see me come into shop with a cup of coffee in my hand. 
during one of my breaks, and there's this little kid walking inside me nearer the plexiglass than I am. And you see this thing coming rumbling towards us as we're walking along. And I'm thinking, it's going to come out of the plexiglass here as it's come towards us. It didn't, but it broke the stage and the stage has collapsed alarmingly. So it's now trundling down towards us. So instead of me being Superman plucking aforementioned six-year-old away to safety, what you clearly see me is ensuring I don't spill a drop of my coffee pushing aforementioned six-year-old into the path of oncoming eight-foot giant robot caught on the screen. Guilty. Guilty, my lad. Bang to rights. Anyway, it was great. And I played it in the series and showed no one noticed. No one noticed. The best thing about it was, was it serious or was it a huge, huge piss take? What was it? Well, I didn't know whether... When we asked you about this, you take Robot Wars quite seriously. To the people, it was serious, I think. Don't you? They wanted to win, right? I think the beauty of it, but when it was at its pomp and we were having such enjoyment out of it, that's all I'm going to say. Was it serious or <laughs> was it a giant Mickey tape? <laughs> okay. I'll leave it there. We'll leave it there. Because that's the riddle. And I think that was always the riddle. And I think that's why it was a huge success. Yeah. I've got some listener questions, that's all right, just to finish on. This one from Cav, actually, who asks, did you have a favourite house robot on Robot Wars? He says he always thought you were a big fan of Sir Killalot. <laughs> no, it was Matilda. Matilda. <laughs> if you go back and listen to it, you know, there are a few risque comments that I used to make about Matilda. Matilda was the sort of giant cross between a, a robotic pig and a, and a rhinoceros, yeah. I guess, with horns and this spinning blade coming out of her backside, so to speak. And we used to make these sort of risque double entendre jokes, Craig and I, about Matilda all the way through. <laughs> Again, it, was it picked up? Did anyone say anything? We don't know. I didn't clock it, but then I was, what, 12? Go back now. It's the old Captain Pugwash scenario. If you go back now, you might pick up on things that we did. <laughs> and so it would be Matilda, but they were great fun, you know. And the other fun thing was right at the start of the series, they used to do, I think they were called ant bots. So there was like mini robots. They were literally, they would fit in the, in the palm of your hand and they'd have their own little arena, superbly scaled down everything. They'd do their little battles. Difficult to commentate on because nothing really ever happened. And then there was, they'd try things like one year, the very first year, I think we had Robot Wars football. And then they'd have to, big metal ball, they'd have to push it towards a goal. And as the series goes on, we realised this is a redundant exercise because no one is scoring goals because the robots are too big and block the goals. So <laughs> it's finished nil-nil. Oh, it's finished nil-nil. <laughs> Hugely entertaining. Nil-nil. One more question from our fan club, which is that from Tony Watson, who says, that, do people still tell you how much Capital Gold meant to them? All the time. I mean, a fella came up to me, I was going up to Arsenal on train platform at the weekend, and he came up and he said, I wish you still commentated like you did on Capital. And I went, well, I was 30, I'm 63. <laughs> you know, I die. I shouldn't last 90 minutes. And also I said people wouldn't have it. So what you can do on the radio, you can't do on television, because if you did that on the television, it's too much. And people would turn yeah. it off or turn the volume down. That You can't do it. And uh, it's very special to be invited into someone's house on a Saturday night, every Saturday night at 10.30. And that's what they're doing. That's what you're doing. People who do my business, you've got to remember, you are being invited into people's homes. So you have to respect that in a way. And um, if they don't want you in their homes, they don't watch. You lose your job. So... 
think most people wouldn't like that nowadays, but it's so touching and I always enjoy talking about those days. And I think I have got that. I learned that from Bobby Moore because Bobby would talk to princes and paupers in the same way. I know it's a cliche, but it is yeah. absolutely true. And what he would do, he'd say, who do you support, boys? And then he'd talk to you about your team. He'd make you feel so important. I do try and talk to them all, and they were such fond days for me. I'm not saying I don't enjoy what I do at the moment because I'm absolutely privileged to work on Match of the Day. It goes back all the years to whatever it was, 1964, and to be part of that programme. And whenever you go abroad, if you say, you know, who do you work for, who are you commentating for today, the BBC people immediately respect that name. So even yeah. with all the problems the BBC have had and face and continue to face, even recently when I thought we were absolutely bang on and right to come out and support Gary as yeah. we did. But all those problems, it still has a cachet. So I, I love what I'm doing. I'll tell you what though, boys, I love what I'm doing between the first whistle and the final whistle. And I love meeting all the old players and the managers and the old school people and talking tales and laughing about things. What I don't like is the politics. I don't like the money. How many managers have gone this season? 12, is it, in the yeah, Premier League? It's nonsense. Yeah. It's utter nonsense. It's not right. You can't build like this. And you need building blocks in place to safeguard the structure of English football. Gareth Southgate quite rightly says there are not enough English qualified players playing in the Premier League. And there aren't. To encourage that, you need to have safe structures. You cannot have safe structures if you're changing things all the time at the top of the football yeah. club. Jonathan, it's been an absolute joy to talk to you. Yeah. Thanks so much for doing it. One more plug for your podcast? Yes. How can people listen? Well, I'm going to do two plugs here. One for JPNT, the Football Friendly podcast. It is fun. Well, you know, you must come on it. We'll reciprocate. Yeah, come to. on it. And the other plug is for Josh Widdicombe. Okay. Oh, thank you. Because I'll leave your podcast with this. My family run a charity called the Lily Foundation. It's in memory of my niece, Lily. And I set it up with my sister, in law Liz many, many years ago. We've now raised eight and a half million pounds. And a lot of that money has come because a certain man called Josh Widdicombe supported us a fair few years ago now, isn't it, Josh? Yeah. You've been involved in the charity. It is a fair few years. It's he... an amazing charity, though, and Liz is an inspiring person. Yeah, she is. Incredible. He's done the comedy night for us. He's been on television quiz programs and won stuff for us. So we will always be indebted to the little lad from Devon, <laughs> from across the border from Kerno. <laughs> <laughs> That's tough for you to take. Thanks, Jonathan. That means a lot. And it's an amazing charity. So if anyone wants to donate this is a great opportunity it's the lily foundation there's one final question we always end on which is that jonathan i'm going to give you the opportunity to go back in time if you want to the first of january 1990 and relive the 90s do it all over again would you do it first of january 1990 yeah i'll let you go back to the day you signed for capital gold oh no it was 87 87 so i'll give, I'll give you an extra three years if you want them september 87 if they said we'll give you 30 seconds to decide I'd have taken 10. I would relive those days if I could with the Wild West gun Mick Lowe's alongside uh -huh. me and Bobby Moore and Terry Neal and Frank McClintock and Alan Murray and all the people who worked with us in the commentary position, all the young reporters who worked, who learnt their trade, who've gone on to do brilliant things in the industry, working with Kenny Everett and working with Chris Tarrant and all these people. How blessed was I? How blessed was I? what fun it was, and I would love those days to return because they were glorious. Yeah, they were. And as a listener of Capital Gold too, they were glorious days and I'd like to relive them. Jonathan, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thanks, boys. 
There we go. That was Jonathan Pierce. I Amazing. love that. I love Loved that. Loved it. What a guy. Can't get enough of that. You know, I didn't know Capital Gold. That's that's your version of me going TFI Friday in the 90s or yeah. the Big Breakfast. It was another great example of the madness of the broadcasting and television that was going on at that period and will never be going on again. It's so... You, his commentary style is so unique. It's almost South American. It's almost, yeah. like, when Capital Gold was broadcasting, you wanted to listen not only for the football scores, but to hear how excited he would get. And it, was, it wasn't just a, a kind of... It was such an articulate excitement. It was such a fantastic broadcaster. And as we kind of touched on there, he would be on all the... If there was football on, he was on air. So he was the voice. Yeah. But like in the days before the internet, that was how I consumed most of kind of football. What an honour to talk to him. Um, okay. So we'll do a quick quiz, shall we? Yeah, well, actually, do you want a quiz that someone has sent in? Oh, yeah, go on then. Yeah, go on. It's a quiz sent in by John Wardell. Thank you for sending this in. What he's done is got, he's calling this a cryptic footballer quiz. So it's a bit kind of crosswordy. I'm going to give you a, a couple of examples. So the Scottish man says no mum. I'm awful at stuff like this. That would be Neymar. Right, OK. Jesus. Every day my vision is totally impaired. Daily blind. Right. Oh my God. This is my nightmare. Okay. Hit first to get one right. First to I get one right. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Okay. <laughs> so this is a nine. I'll give you a clue. It's nineties footballer. Tiny famous porno. I'll give you a clue. French. Oh, Emmanuel Petit. Uh, Emmanuel Petit. Emmanuel Petit. Oh, Michael gets one point. What? I just beat you there. I think you just oh, beat it. Well, we'll have more? to listen back to that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm doing the edit, so I definitely won. <laughs> this guy shaves local area networks. Alan Shearer. Correct. One all. Oh. This is all right. Okay. So this is for the winner. Okay. His job is to use dull-coloured lunch meat to make fitted suits. Dull-coloured lunch meat to make fitted suits. Spam tux. <laughs> uh, Who makes fitted suits? Taylor. Yeah. Spam Graham Taylor. Taylor. Graham Taylor. Graham Taylor. Graham Taylor. Oh. Taylor. Well done, Michael. Two one. Oh, well I think. Do you want to, I think we'll declare him the winner there. Thank you very Spam much. Spam tux. Thank you very much. John Spam tux was a Bulgarian player. <laughs> he was in the '94 squad, wasn't he? Yeah. That's it for this week. Sign-off comes courtesy of Martin Pete, who says this. I guess that's that, David Platt. Go, let's! Hit, let's! Hit, let's over the top!